Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY. Before we dive into this episode, I need to inform you of the unprecedented financial strain we are currently experiencing at the museum due to the COVID-19 pandemic. For six months during 2020, we closed our doors to help slow and stall the spread of COVID-19. Although we reopened in September, the decline in visitors and tourism has made a grave impact on our survival. This podcast, our extensive museum collection, our preservation initiatives, and our outreach programs are only made possible with help from people like you, people who care deeply about the fire department in New York City and cherish its extraordinary history, unique heritage, and life-saving mission. Please consider donating to the New York City Fire Museum this holiday season. Visit nycfiremuseum.org donate to learn how you can support us. We are currently in uncharted territory, Cultural institutions like ours are facing an uphill battle as COVID-19 continues to have wide-reaching and devastating impacts. But we remain optimistic for our future because we know that as a community, we are not just fire buffs. We are students of history, always looking to learn from our past so we could build a better and brighter future. Thank you for supporting the New York City Fire Museum during this challenging time. And now, let's get this show started. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, a military structure takes root in 1867 under General Alexander Shaler, the 1940 origin of the training publication WNYF, and the deadly 1949 Holland Tunnel Fire. As an historian, people often ask me why the fire department operates with somewhat of a military structure. Some even call it a quasi-military or paramilitary organization. I'll tell you why. The reasons date back to the year 1867 and the events leading up to it. As most of you know, the FDNY was a volunteer fire department dating back to the 18th century. As the city grew, the fire department had to grow with it. The volunteers could be very, well, let's call it competitive when it came to getting first water on the fire. In fact, fisticuffs among responding companies was not uncommon. With lobbying by insurance companies and some political forces of the day, the New York State Legislature stepped in and took control of the New York Fire Department, making it a paid force in 1865. But of course, it didn't end there. The new department faced a terrible fire on May 21st, 1866 at the Academy of Music. Two firefighters lost their lives. The old volunteers attempted to convince the powers that be that the tragedy reflected badly on the new Board of Fire Commissioners, and they lobbied for its abolishment. Instead, the governor, who had the power to appoint the fire commissioners, appointed General Alexander Shaler to take over the board. General Shaler was born in Connecticut, but his family moved to New York City when he was seven years old, and he grew up here. He became a member of the New York State Militia and wrote a Manual of Arms for Light Infantry. When the Civil War broke out, his regiment was sent to defend the District of Columbia. His unit served in various areas and battles throughout the East. At the Second Battle of Fredericksburg, Shaler made a bold move and he led his men into the Confederate line, a decisive tactic that won the battle. For this action, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. After the war, General Shaler remained active in the New York militia, but he entered into civilian pursuits. His military leadership was well known in New York and was seen as the answer to bringing discipline to the new fire department. He was appointed president of the Board of Fire Commissioners in 1867. 
He instituted various changes to the organizational structure, making it comparable to those of the military. Much like the Army, the basic unit was the company, which remained so. But districts became battalions, and he assigned them to brigades, which later became divisions as we know them today. At that time, the ranks of the department consisted of hosemen and lattermen, firemen, engineer of steamer, assistant foreman, foreman, district engineer, assistant engineer, and chief engineer. Shaler changed these to military ranks. Hosemen and lattermen became cadet, firemen became private, engineer became sergeant, assistant foreman was a lieutenant, and foreman was captain. District engineer was major, assistant engineer was lieutenant colonel, chief engineer colonel, and commissioner, well, of course, general. Most of those ranks didn't stand the test of time, but those familiar with the fire department will note that to this day, the ranks of lieutenant and captain are still used. Commissioner Scherler instituted many reforms in the department, all of which can truly be credited with transitioning the FDNY from a volunteer force to a paid professional one. So impressive were his accomplishments that after the Great Chicago Fire, the Chicago Fire Department hired him as a consultant to do the same for them as he did for New York. As one would expect, General Shaler's office was in Fire Department headquarters, then located in 155 Mercer Street in Manhattan. During his tenure, a museum was established there to celebrate the history of the department and especially its humble volunteer beginnings. Not only did that collection stand the test of time, with many of the artifacts still in the collection of the New York City Fire Museum, that building stands less than a mile from the museum's current location. The current owners of the building restored the facade to the way it looked back in Shaler's time, including the limestone sign proclaiming it Fireman's Hall. General Shaler made profound impacts that were the foundation of the FDNY as we know it today. Hello everyone, I'm Ted Grant, President of the Board of Trustees of the New York City Fire Museum. As we all know, the world has drastically changed since March 2020. There remains a very difficult time for everyone. At the New York City Fire Museum, our principal sources of revenue have all but disappeared this year. While we normally host nearly 10,000 school children in our fire safety education program, school closures have caused that to cease. We are also visited by about 30,000 other visitors each year, many outside the metropolitan area, including firefighters from around the world. But tourism has all but stopped. And we host many events annually for community and other organizations that too has stopped. As a result, the museum is now under severe financial strain in our ability to keep the museum open, which is run by a nonprofit organization established in 1981. Our nonprofit institution is not funded by the FDNY or the city of New York. If you believe in our mission to preserve history, educate children on fire safety, and celebrate the heroism of first responders and the contribution of the fire department, please consider making a tax-exempt donation to our new crisis recovery fund at nycfiremuseum.org donate. It's hard to believe, but the Alliance of American Museums estimates as many as one-third of the nation's museum will be forced to close due to the unprecedented toll of the pandemic on cultural institutions that depend on visitors, members, and donors to survive. Please don't let the New York City Fire Museum be one of the ones to close. As we approach the holiday season and the end of the tax year, 
please remember the New York City Fire Museum in your charitable donations. All donations are tax exempt. Again, you can support us by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash donate. Thank you for your generosity, continued support, and for partnering with us to preserve, educate, and celebrate the history and tradition of the FDNY. In November 1940, the New York City Fire Department published what appeared to be a newsletter. It was a simple, eight-page, black-and-white document. It had a name, WNYF. What did that mean? Well, it was the call letters of the still-new FDNY radio system. Some of you may remember that radio and television stations east of the Rockies have call letters starting with a W, like WABC, WCBS, WNBC, to name a few. RNYF ostensibly stood for New York Fire. But for this new publication, it stood for With New York Firemen, WNYF, later updated to With New York Firefighters. Some of the articles covered in that first issue included the LaGuardia Field crash wagon, new apparatus for Rescue One, stenciling of hydrants, and London's fire department. Initially, the first magazine format issue in 1941 endeavored to cover a broad range of interest to firefighters. Most importantly, there were always educational articles to reinforce lessons learned or to convey new ideas and techniques. But there were many articles of a more personal nature, in fact, even some fiction. Letters from citizens complimenting the actions of the department at fires and other emergencies, and interviews with members of the department on one topic or another. Some regular columns began to appear like through the bag with those letters from citizens, all hands with reports from each division on their activities, usually on the lighter side, fire anecdotes, short paragraphs with tidbits of history or just general firematic interest, and photo reporter, a centerfold featuring images taken by the department's photo unit at fires, emergencies, and events. The magazine really caught on and provided an educational and general sense of camaraderie. After the first and only issue of 1940, WNYF became a quarterly publication. Initially just printed in black and white, the first colorized image appeared on the cover of the January 1943 edition, but it was an artistic rendition of a combined military and FDNY tribute. Remember, World War II was still raging. The first full-color photograph didn't debut until July of 1955. WNYF is now full-color. Other than a brief period in the mid-90s, WNYF has been continuously published with hundreds of articles written by FDNY members of every rank. That's quite an accomplishment, and one that the FDNY is proud of. Today, WNYF remains a respected publication with a new home at FDNYPro.org. Its success has helped launch a sister publication, Pro-EMS, in 2016, an annual fitness issue, Pro-Fit, in 2017, a podcast, film series, events, and a line of books, including three textbooks by the most prolific writer in the fire service, my friend, retired FDNY chief Vincent Dunn. But at the heart of it all remains WNYF. If you are interested in subscribing or reading up on eight decades of training material, learn more at FDNYPro.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Throwback FDNY podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we need your help. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, our main sources of income have declined significantly. 
In-person visits, school trips, event space rentals, and shop sales have all been impacted. We are now forced to rely more heavily on the generosity of our supporters. Please donate to the New York City Fire Museum to help us fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate. Visit nycfiremuseum.org slash donate to learn how you can support us. And now back to the episode. When the Holland Tunnel opened, it was an engineering marvel. It's a crossing that is near and dear to our hearts here at the New York City Fire Museum because its New York entrance is right behind our building and its tubes lie just yards away from our building's foundation. This was the second of two underground and underwater vehicular passages between New York and New Jersey. It's not the tunnel itself that I want to talk about. It's the fire that occurred there in 1949. At approximately 8.45 a.m. on Friday, May 13th, a 55-gallon drum of carbon disulfide, a chemical prohibited from the tunnel, fell from a truck carrying 80 such barrels, and its vapors were ignited, causing an inferno. The truck entered at the New Jersey terminus of the tunnel and was about 1,500 feet in when the incident occurred. Can you imagine the horror of being in your car when that happened? Remember, this is long before strict hazardous cargo regulations were imposed on trucking, coupled with a much more liberal use of such chemicals in everything from the home to large-scale manufacturing. As a result, trucks passing through the tunnel could have, and did have, an array of hazardous, flammable, and inflammable agents on board. Indeed, the fire that erupted was massive. Fortunately, all of the passenger cars that were in the tube were able to either proceed to the New York City exit or back out to the Jersey City side. The FDNY first received notification from the Holland Tunnel's New York operations office around 9.15 a.m. that chemical fumes were escaping from the tunnel. Rescue 1 was immediately dispatched and was accompanied by the chief of Battalion 5, which was quartered with Engine 30 at 278 Spring Street, now the home of the museum. They entered the New Jersey-bound tube and, after proceeding at about 6,300 feet, crossed over to the New York-bound side, where the fire was raging. At that point, an estimated 10 trucks were involved, and there were continued explosions of the carbon disulfide. Using the tunnel's phone system, Battalion Chief Heaney got word to FDNY's Manhattan dispatch to transmit a first alarm assignment. His aide met the units at the New York entrance, and engines 30 and 27 entered the tunnel. The firefighters from other responding units left their apparatus behind and rode in with those two engine companies. As the firefight progressed, additional FDNY units were dispatched. Rescue 2 responded from Brooklyn and was instructed to cross Manhattan to the Lincoln Tunnel and go into New Jersey to enter from that side. Eventually, four of the FDNY's five rescue companies responded to this unusual fire, along with a host of the department's special apparatus at the time including three ambulances, an oxygen therapy unit, and the smoke ejector unit. The blaze took two hours to bring under control. Over 300 linear feet of the tunnel sustained heavy damage and was littered with the remains of all the vehicles that became involved. Although the structural integrity of the tunnel was a concern to many, it was never compromised or at risk of collapse. But there was a greater cost. Battalion Chief Gunther Beek of Battalion 3 died from smoke inhalation sustained at this fire. In 1949, self-contained breathing apparatus was not in widespread use, so Chief Beak 
and all the firefighters were exposed to the noxious fumes and deadly gases given off by the burning chemicals. Captain Salvatore Rogers of our own engine company 30 received a class two commendation on behalf of the company for its actions at the fire. All first responders to the fire each received a special commemorative medal from the Port of New York and New Jersey. The Holland Tunnel Fire is another example of the incredible expertise and competence of the New York Fire Department and its ability to handle anything that comes its way. And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. The FDNY relies heavily on a computerized database housing information gathered by the Department's Bureau of Fire Prevention, as well as by fire companies performing building inspection. Access via the dispatcher, responding units can be provided with information on a building, such as building height, width, and depth, type of occupancy like commercial, residential, and mixed, location of standpipes, and location of hazardous materials stored within. What is this system called? The answer can be found in our previous episode and in this month's installment of our companion Throwback FDNY newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. Thank you all for listening. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you with the help of the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. Thank you to the New York City Fire Museum Board of Trustees, our staff, volunteers, and of course, our museum members. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this. We can all do our part to be a partner to the fire department by promoting fire safety. It starts in each of our homes by ensuring we all have a working smoke and carbon monoxide alarm. Thank you, and be safe.